Welcome again to Permaculture Tonight. I've got the audio from a talk I gave at the Valley Home Educators Conference in Modesto, California. And it was really amazing. Everyone there knew each other and I'd been going to it for years. It was this traditional thing in their families. And I got to meet so many people that are passionate about growing food, passionate about their families, passionate about teaching their kids really ethical and important vital skills. So I, it was so much fun and I, they recorded it for me. So I didn't even record this. This is a recording done by Valley Home Educators and it was specifically done by OT Studios. And it's just really, really awesome that they did this so that I could share this with you. This will just give you an idea of what I'm like at one of my presentations or talks. Here we go. All right, we're going to leave the door open for a little bit. Yeah. Sounds great. All right, well, welcome to Homeschooling and Permaculture. I am Matt Powers. I am going to introduce myself now. So who am I? Well, I'm a family guy. I'm a homeschooling person, just like everyone else here. Uh, and I'm actually an East Coast person that moved to the West Coast. So I kind of have a unique perspective. Mo uh, mostly it seems like we don't go to each other's coasts. We stay to our sides of the room or the, the country. Um, but I've gone from both, from both the, the non-brittle to the brittle. Because this climate's brittle, especially in the Central Valley where I'm from. I don't know if you guys have been there, but you make a patch of dirt, it'll stay dirt. That's a brittle climate. If it heals quickly, that's a non-brittle climate. And so I'm from a non-brittle climate. Everything grew rampantly. Everything was green where I grew up. And I moved out here. I became a public school teacher because I was a musician and I uh, wanted to be home. And I, you know, I, I realized what my responsibility was, right? And so I became a teacher because I needed to be home. I was kind of a kooky teacher. I really fell in love with seeds while I became a teacher and when I moved out here. Because I started gardening. And I love... By the way, if anyone talked to me earlier about orange giant amaranth, this is the orange giant amaranth I, uh, I bred to be red. I just planted some of those and they're only like this big. Sweet. I'm so excited. Yes. Did you get them from me? I, no, I, I didn't. Okay, okay. I got them um, People who order books from me sometimes get little surprises in the books, so I always ask. Uh, so this is Painted Mountain Corn. I really am all about nature now. I'm really about uh, crazy food, um, taking amazing pictures of those kinds of things. Uh, this, is my, this is what it looks like outside my door. Um, I have about two acres of, of garden that looks like this. And it's rampant. But it's all food. It's all edible. So um, I've, I've got perennials and trees and lots of annuals, particularly self-seeding annuals. Um, if just to show you scale, um, that's me. It's my head right there. That's my body. So it's it's pretty big. I'm gonna be doing a, a video with a free webinar of my farm tour and how I grow because most people are very unfamiliar with growing food like this. Because it looks crazy. You're like, where is everything? The animals feel the same way. <laughs> Except for the little ones. Little ones figure their way out. They love this. You walk out there and there's like clouds of little birds. Like teeny little birds. 
not the big like blue jays. I'm talking about birds that are like this big. And you're like, where is this? I've never seen birds. And they're just fleet, like, fl- like all over the place. I think because I made, uh, I grew a millet, and they like those small seeds. Um, but what every time you know, every time a bird lands, it drops nutrient. So when you attract birds into a system in a non-confrontational um, way, when they're not destroying something of yours. They're just giving you good stuff. And they're also bringing in other stuff that's attached to their feathers and fish eggs and all these different things. And So, anyway, this is another for, uh, uh, patch of mine. This is a dry farming patch. Um, where, where do you live? I live uh, in, in the foothills of the Central Valley. So, um, how many people have heard of the, uh, I think it's called, yeah, Serpa Fire? That's the Veter's land. They're, I go to church with them. They're really close friends of ours. Um, and that's a few blocks away from our house. And then the fire before that, the Chevron fire in our area, our next door neighbors. So fire's like everywhere. And it's so dry that like plastic garbage will start fire. Not metal, just plastic. So we're, at like a, we're, we're just in a, a, an area that's going to burn. And unless we do some very drastic things, but that's another talk that I already gave at the Valley Fire uh, Recovery <laughs> Expo. But yeah, um, I've got a few different areas. Um, I did this as an experiment because how many people here have stick piles, right? So um, it's not my property. I don't like burning. They burned, but they left this big bear patch because they did it in the middle of the thing because they didn't want to start a fire. They did it in the middle of the road. So I was like, okay, a bear patch. So I'm going to just throw so, and I'm going to let nature you know, do its thing, and El Nino is going to help me out and give me a boost this year. And then next year when I do it again, it'll be better because they'll be more adapted. So I went for it. We got more rain than we, we usually do because of El Nino. I know all, you guys have experienced the same thing. It's been amazing, though. What's with all the weird bugs, right? El Nino brought all the different, like, it's so much more moisture, so now you have, like, slugs? Never? Yeah, eight years, no slugs. Slugs this year. Um, So, yeah, I'm doing this there. I'm adapting. I'm using this year as an opportunity to get some seeds super dry dry farming tolerant. So, right now, um, this patch is about 20 feet by 20 feet. Uh, I've got another place with kale that's below my goat pen. So there's moisture there, but it's pretty minimal. But there's shade. You know what I mean? So there's factors, but it's still, it's growing full-size kale, leaves this big with no watering. So it's super possible. Um, so this is the kind of stuff that I got super into. And, I start, and then I wrote this book because I took uh, Jeff Lawton's online uh, permaculture design course. And it... It's everywhere in the world now, except Antarctica, because no one there is doing permaculture yet. Um, so my books are all over the world, and they're being translated in over a dozen languages. It's basically, these books are a foundation for how to work with nature. I'll explain permaculture in a second here, but um, they're just foundational, uh, principle-based, and with techniques that are based on the principles as examples. And that's all it really is. So it's super usable, super understandable, super translatable, and it's all supported by people. So I, I only was able to do this and quit my job. Actually, this was how I quit my job. 
I made the, my salary in a month. My, my books really did because you had to use this money to you know do the printing and all that, right? But I made the same amount of money, so I was like, "What am I doing? I quit." <laughs> and so I was able to quit because I don't know if you guys any. How many of you are teachers? Uh, not just homeschool teachers, but like actual teachers. That's right. That's right. You go to public school, half the teachers are homeschooling. Why? Because they know. <laughs> they know. And that's why they don't argue with us. That's why we're not on Facebook with public school teachers being like, you homeschool parents. They don't argue with us because they're with us. They're, qui- they're, they're quietly with us, either angrily, like, like, like denial, right? But they're with us, really. So I, have all this, I got all this support. I was able to do this thing. So let's talk about what permaculture is. So it... Quick side note, the reason I got into all this gardening stuff is because my wife got cancer three times. Um, and this stuff became like the difference between me stressing out all day and me being able to be a happy person. So I had to have answers to a lot of these questions about what to do, what, how to be healthy. And so it took many, many years and permaculture was basically where we ended up, um, where we need to start to create enough nutri- nutrient density in our foods, enough clean water, and all the different things that actually have led to us having pandemic cancer. So permaculture really is permanent agriculture in its naissance and its start, but it became permanent culture more recently because, um, well, this is my definition, but there's reasons that it spread out of agriculture. So it's a holistic design science based upon the systems of nature and the patterns of nature that serve both people and the planet regeneratively and ethically. Everyone talks about being sustainable. Scary things are sustainable. Violence is sustainable. Sadly, it is. Slavery was ickly, you know, sustainable, but regenerative. Ethically regenerative. It means it honors you. It honors the earth that we have, that we, we have this opportunity to be on for, the, for this short period of time. It honors each other's families. And the people that came before us. So, when we're regenerative and we're ethical, it creates all these patterns of stability that are both emotional, spiritual, and, and physical, like environmental and, 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 and just in, how you interact with the community. You know what I mean? So, it looks like this when you're talking about it to kids usually. Because they can see how taking care of the earth, taking care of people and creating an abundance keeps permanent cultures. Because unless the earth is abundant, people aren't going to be abundant. Right? So, and if, and if people are just focusing on caring for themselves, the earth is going to suffer. Oh, is that what happened? <laughs> so it may look like a fantasy. This is a picture from one of my books I'm selling out there. It may look like a fantasy, but this is actually based on real, um, real things. Um, if you guys go, well, I'll get to that in a second, but the Los Plateau in China was a devastated, desertified landscape that they turned into that. It's real. They did it in six years. And they did it by following the principles of nature. And a wonderful thing to do with, with uh, any student of any age is to go fly around on Google Earth. 
and actually look at how much land they did. Because it's the size of Central Valley. So we could fix the Central Valley. It's, it, uh, they're worse than we are, like in the bad area still, and they're fixing it with this. So um, it, it's, it's, it's really amazing. So initially, like all these problems that we're talking about, they, they, they very simply are, um, we could call them climate change. Um, a lot of people get their hands dirty with the whole climate change thing. It's really simple. If I cut down all your trees on your property, um, is your property here in California going to do that well? Is all, it's going to get blasted by the sun. It's going to turn into like lifeless dirt. Right, and we know that. So that's a form of climate change. We've just done that on a planetary scale. And it's really just that simple. We don't need to get political or numbers and all that, you know. I've done the research on that. I know which parts are real and which aren't. Um, and I can do all that, but it's not necessary to even go there. Um, and I have that in, in, in the high school textbook. Um, but desertification, we're re- you know that the Sahara, you know how, oh, this, 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 this blew my mind. I went to the uh, San Jose Egyptian Museum. Have you guys been to it? It's the biggest one on the West Coast. Okay, they're showing pictures of the way it was, and it shows sand and these giant, beautiful, colorful things that look like they're from you know, the Mayan jungles. And it's like, wow, it's just like Latin America, except it's all desert. Was it really desert, guys? No. We made that desert. Not us personally, but people did. We made that desert when we took all the keystone species out of them and played with them in the, in the, with the gladiators in the Colosseum. Do you know they did 90,000 animals a day at one point? Yeah. They had to distract those people really hard because they were doing things like, oh, like today. Um, We removed the animals and then they did agriculture. They tilled. And remember the Romans, a lot of people say the Roman culture died because they were tilling six times a year. And they literally pushed the topsoil into the Mediterranean. So... We've done this for so long that we forget what the world really was like. Desertification, we built the deserts on the earth. The earth wasn't built with deserts. We built them. We can reverse them. You know the Amazon? They discovered recently the Amazon is mostly human built. We extended the river out with canals. And we planted alongside them with the seedlings from over there. And then we made it bigger and bigger and bigger. You can do it again. It's really not that hard either. We just are incentivized to do the wrong thing right now in our society. And that's why what what we're doing with our families, pulling ourselves out of their system and going, we're going to create a system that's ethical, that makes sense, and works. And that's what we're doing with with our schooling, and that's what we really need to do with our food system and and, and more. And so we'll get to that. Um, So initially, permaculture was about, it was very... um, is very self-centered. <laughs> so they're like, I want a, a good homestead and I want healthier eating lifestyles. I want a better community and better relationships. I want to be regenerative instead of consuming. And that's great. And that's really where we all need to start, actually. That's why teenagers are kind of selfish because they need to do these skills. For real, though. They need to know these skills and then they need to go out in the world and then give and help and serve. And... So it's like, it's like being, able to, being on higher ground is how we lift people up, right? We can't be, we have to be on higher ground to lift people up, right? 
Um, since the publishing of what we call uh, the Permaculture Designer's Manual, which is considered like the Bible of permaculture, um, it's changed. It's been a huge amount of change. So there's this thing called holistic uh, design and management. It views the world as whole systems. So your family is a system and your child is its own system within that system. And then, you know, within your child is a digestive system. Within that is the, uh, you know, the, the, the bacteria and the gut biome. And then within that are the different interactions between uh, the elements, you know, that, you know, that are being exchanged and recombined and all this stuff. So seeing the world that way really kind of throws our science, um, like, down the hill a bit. Our science is all reductionist, and that's why you don't have mycology in every college. Do you guys know that every plant and every living thing is also part fungi? When I heard that, I didn't believe it. That can't be right. I'm not fungi. That seems kind of weird. Eh? No, we are. All and everything. And, and why don't we? Why aren't we studying it? Oh, because it was didn't fit into the way it created everything into a system and because it creates this whole one system it makes it so that you can't reduce and make an expert of this field you're not the expert we have to share that meaning and we have to be humble right and then work with each other and no one gets to be the king you know so holistic management dr elaine ingham do you guys know who she is i'm working with her she is basically like the person that uh, made compost tea popular. She can take soil that is like unarable. In Saudi Arabia, she was able to take desert sand and get a dewfall palm garden to grow without any watering after six months. Shocking. She's right now doing the, she was the head scientist at the Rodale Institute. She left because she felt they weren't doing um, their things uh, like they said they should. Uh, for instance, they say no till, but they till during the winters. They don't till during the season. She's like, but then you just destroyed all the fungi when you till, right? So she's doing it no till. She's doing it outside of Oroville right now, and I filmed it. It's called the Celebration Farm. So she's unbelievable. She's actually saved the planet already once. They were going to release a GMO bacteria that turned anything that, um, that's ever lived into um, ethanol. If you think about that for a second. Because once, yeah, it turns everything into ethanol. It would turn the whole planet into a gas ball. And they were going to release it. And she literally testified in court. This is, this is documented. She public, uh, publicly testified in court and explained and taught the people in court the science and they all realized that it would turn the whole planet into a, a giant gas ball. And they made them destroy it in the lab. And they were planning on releasing it. Yeah. But, I mean, if you think about it, uh, you know, anyway. Uh, keep going. Uh, so, <laughs> so, epigenetics. Has anyone heard of epigenetics? Epigenetics are the, uh, are, is the discovery that there's these switches on the sides of our gene sequences. Our gene sequences are bundles of phenotypic expression, meaning they're bundles of behaviors and characteristics. They're not one thing. They're not fixed. 
GMOs are based on the idea that they're fixed. And that you can take one from here, one from here, from this animal, and from this, and... No, no, no. Can't play God. Um, so, epigenetics proves that genes are much more complicated, and they also prove something quite beautiful. Our behaviors affect our children, our children's children, and our children's children's children. If I drink alcohol, my kids are going to be more prone to drink alcohol. If I'm an alcoholic, they're going to be more more prone for generations. The same thing is if I'm a runner, I'm a writer. Everything is genetically coded. And it's live. It's constantly being coded. And that's why it's so complicated. They're like, it's this fixed thing we discovered. We took a picture of it. It's like, it's a video. Welcome to the new century. It's a video. It's not a picture. So epigenetics, it's absolutely incredible. DNA is not destiny came out in Discover Magazine, I think 2005, 2006. So it's not that, it's not that new, but it's changed everything despite the fact that um, public science won't admit it. Um, epigenetics is in all the magazines, but, but the governmental science and the public school science won't admit science has grown up. They're still in the 70s, and that's part of the reason why we're here, right? We want real things. So, emergence emergence of mycology as a core science, fungi, we talked about that, maturation of permaculture design. They've been doing humanitarian aid for the past 20 years, a lot of these designers that learned permaculture. So, Rosemary Morrow, after uh, Pol Pot was pulled down uh, out of power, no one wanted to go in. They killed all the men with glasses, because they were the ones who could read. And so it was women who were left, and the women didn't know how to grow food. So people were starving in Cambodia. I don't know if you guys remember this. People were starving. They couldn't send in food because it would have created violence. And so what did they do? They sent in Rosemary Morrow, and she taught women how to grow food themselves and taught them permaculture. And, she, and she's like, when she talks about permaculture, the way she talks about it, she goes in and looks at the children. Talks to the moms only. She goes and feels the underarms of children to tell how uh, how well fed they are. How to, and, and actually, once she started going to de- more developed countries, she had to do that because um, not first world, but like in Africa where they're industrializing here, because they're not eating nutrient dense food anymore. They're not eating their traditional diets. They're eating oatmeal for half their meals, and so they're literally starving even though they're eating. Anyway, okay, so all these things are happening. Um, there's new alternative energy things that are old, that are new, that are coming back, that I'll talk about. Um, carbon sequestration, carbon farming are, are coming to the fore. Uh, Eric Tonsmeyer has an incredible book on this. Uh, there's amazing advances that are happening in greenhouse technology. They're pumping the hot air from the summer down into the dirt, piping it through the dirt so the dirt heats up. And then in winter... They're pumping it back out. And the heat that's stored in the dirt in the summer is released in the winter. And so it creates a cycle in Canada where they're growing year-round with just a fan. So, and then urban farming. Um, people are making 100 grand on uh, an acre in urban farming now. And they're writing books where it's like the metrics are there. This is how you plant. This is the machine. This is how long you wait. This is the day. There's no mistaking and you just, you just have to show up with a smile 
and make sure you're personable at your local farmer's market and you can make a business go. So these things are happening because you can undercut them. I mean, we're at the point now where permaculture is undercutting the market. And that's why if you watch what's going on, the market's adapting and starting to do permaculture. So we've gone from individual to generational, from agricultural to all culture. We're developing right now from agrarian to industrial to information to regenerative. Because the, the, the other option is degenerative. Um, because if we keep following oil and oil degrades, we degrade with it. I don't want to do that. I want to keep going. So everyone is needing all, uh, all talents and skills. This whole like job crisis that we face is really us getting dislocated from actual like human activity. I mean, we'll get that into that later. But like local living means that everyone has a job and a place and a role. And the fact that we created globalized living has killed that. So it's a new renaissance and we're seeing it everywhere. Local food, CSAs, we have CSA farms, we have community gardens, we've got um, farmers markets are the fastest growing source of food in America. And we have edible landscapes that are showing up in cities and towns constantly, especially in areas uh, like this where we could easily support that. And all the gray water from all the buildings or all the faucets, all the stuff that's like, well, it's not really bad water. Grow food with it. There's the Beacon Food Forest. Uh, I've heard it's amazing. In San Francisco, they're so upset about this that they're going around grafting all the trees. Uh, suburban farms. People are flipping their lawns. City farms. This is Curtis Stone. On a third of an acre, he's making 73000 a year. He's a good friend of mine. He has months of information. Curtis Stone and J.M. Fortier. Jean-Martin Fortier is uh, his other counterpart on the other side of Canada who's doing amazing work as well. And they, they're, they're basically... Like, very similar, but the differences make them more unique in your mind. And, and it's not like you have to own the land. Ho, ho, ho. You don't want to own the land. Because the lease costs a fraction of what actually paying for the land does. And then you don't, you can just move to someone else's property when you want. So this is uh, Will Allen. He's growing uh, like 10,000 pounds of food on a quarter of an acre um, in uh, the winter in Chicago and in, um, not Minneapolis, one of those other cold cities <laughs> in the Midwest. Um, it's one of the beer towns, um, Milwaukee. Milwaukee, there you go. Yeah, I, I, I was a touring musician. I toured with Rachel Ray's husband. We literally followed Rachel Ray around just eating all over America. It was amazing. Um, yeah, my earlier life. All right, so thinking vertical, people are doing vertical farms of skies in the Bronx. Um, if we have vines that are edible crawling up our houses and our balconies, we just go out on our balconies and harvest food. Um, you know that hardy kiwi grows in cold, cold climates and in warm climates and can go 60 feet tall. And it can root on each other's balconies. Uh, water catchment design. This is uh, Brad Lancaster. He proved that um, Phoenix gets enough rainwater. They get enough rainwater. They just don't manage it. LA doesn't need my water above me in the Sierra Nevadas. They really don't need to flush it out and abuse it like that. They can use their own water that they channelized all their streams to get rid of every year because it's too much. 
they need to work out what's going on. Is it too much or is it not enough? You know what I mean? So, um, I, I spent some time in LA, so it's okay. Um, aquaculture. But that's not, that's Anaheim. That's not even, that's not even LA. All right, so this is Will. He's got his fish. He's growing fish and greens in a, in a closed loop. Um, passive energy. This is from, uh, this is actually a model that's um, not even going to end up in my book. This is getting illustrated. Um, this is showing an apartment, and this is uh, rainwater uh, that you catch. Like, let's say you're in Seattle, so you get plenty of rain. Well, you can send that down here, and as it goes down, you could have it aerate, and then all the bubbles that get caught in there will settle out and rise and become pressurized air. This is actually real. Um, there's a long history of this whole system. It's called a TROMP, T-R-O-M-P-E. Um, and then the other side, you could just have it passively go down, and then you could passively use that weight to uh, filter it through grand, uh, uh, sorry, sand, gravel, uh, charcoal filters. And then you could have it aerate because it's pressurized still. And then you could uh, do a fish pond, and then they could further process it with a reeds, cattails, other things that take out heavy metals and stuff like that. Um, and then the overflow would uh, go into a gray water garden. And if you live here, maybe you get money off or maybe it's free for you or you know what I mean. And then over here, that compressed air will run a turbine and maybe run the lights at night or you know what I mean, some aspect. Because the reality that we have to accept about alternative energy is there's no silver bullet. We need to use everything, like everything. Uh, and then, and then the, the, the water creates a geyser effect because it's uh, still under pressure in order to have the, water stay, uh, the air stay under pressure. So that also can be uh, um, used to aerate it and do a garden here. And then you filter the water down and make an uh, apartment reservoir. So there's no water lossage. And then maybe that electricity is used to just pump it back up. And maybe you have a passive water system and that's what that's for. Um, because, I mean, obviously, uh, rain, roof, wa uh, roof rainwater tromp would only work in a really wet climate. And it would only have a limited capacity. So let's talk about tromps, though. Ragged shoots is the compressed air plant in Ontario, Canada. I am talking to an Ontario power generation trying to figure out what's left. Because I want to go. And I want to film it. Because no one's filmed it. No one's been yet. And it ran for 70 years, making free energy. So I'll explain. Right here is a water gate. You can see the lines. So when they lift it up, they can minimize this. And then it goes above here. And then they stop the water pressure. So they can go down there and fix it or change things. But this actually right here changes the amount of pressure here. Does that make sense? You're controlling the pressure here and here with the water. And so falling water has air in it, settles out in here. And so you have compressed air. And they actually used it for cobalt mines. Um, and then the water's released here. And it's a big geyser and fun. And it, compressed air is cold. Where is that? Ontario, Canada. If you just type in ragged shoots, Ontario, Canada, you will not be lost. Or, or Trump. So this is another passive energy thing. This is the Wallapini. Um, my church 
created this. This is a, a part of the BYU Institute, um, and they're, they're trying to help people where they're at in Latin America. Um, so uh, a bunch of uh, Mormons in Utah thought this up. This is perpendicular to winter solstice. So you're getting the most energy on the day with the least energy. And then it's glancing off of it the rest of the year, so you're minimizing the energy coming in so you don't cook it. This is 8 to 10 feet deep. You've got your topsoil because you have no topsoil this deep. And, they're gr- and then it's graded off so that it goes down into gravel uh, sinks so that you don't waterlog it. And basically, this is an earth-sunken greenhouse. They're growing bananas at 6,000 feet in the middle of winter in the Andes. It works. Crazy. A wallapini. And it means warm place in the original language of the people they were working with, developing these with. W-A-L-I-P-I-N-I. Wallapini. Yeah, so it's very, very, very cool stuff. Um, and we all kind of know these things. It, it's really, it's, it seems so obvious. I have 15 minutes. Yes, I better hurry up. So solar energy comes in here. Cooling effect of your, you know, the ground, your, your foundation goes in here. It's heated by the sun, causes the, hair, uh, the air to rise. This actually is an engine that can move the air in your house or in an engine like a Stirling engine. Do you guys know that Stirling engines used air instead of steam to make engines work before the law of thermodynamics was discovered? Yeah. We did things by intuition that we... That's not possible. Um, so design your house so the sun angles, right? We, we, we all can do this. Good architects should still do this. Paper to fungi. All of our paper waste can be digested. So... These are cigarette butts being eaten by fungi, by oyster mushrooms. My friend Peter McCoy did this. Um, we need to improve our neighborhoods in, in a lot of fundamental ways. I know that ho- the homeschool cr- crew is like, we're uniquely friendly. But the rest of the neighborhood's not. <laughs> and that's because there's no local anything. There's nothing for us to agree on or talk about. You know, it's like, what do we have in common? Politics. Don't talk about that. So... Um, the local market. We have no local economy. We have nothing community. And so the, the, the butcher, the baker, the local everything, that kills commuting at the same time. Uh, and then think about all the energy we save when average commute for an American citizen is 45 minutes. So on average. That means those of us who have less than that, someone has more. Okay. So we need to also live as things will be, not as things are. And that's a fundamental concept that is going to be very difficult for um, many people to grasp because that means that they have to give up what they can have right now. You can go and get that. Fill up that tank. It's easy. But no, we're going to have to do the hard thing and, and practice self-restraint. So we have to look to the future. We've got to buy what's last, buy what's generational. We've got to start going around. And um, like someone said earlier, we've got to just attack those abandoned lots. They asked me if I do that. And I was like, well, sort of. Not really. Um, I, I, believe me, if you start throwing things out of your car in Fresno, that's trouble. <laughs> He's throwing brown stuff out of his car. Get him! It's like those sort of things you're throwing, like, I don't know. Uh, you just got to be careful. Careful out there. 
Okay. So yeah, Ron Finley has he forced LA to accept gardens. And it's awesome. We need to do that too. But he did it because of community. Many communities were behind him. So vermicompost. Uh, we need to turn all our kitchen scraps in, uh, using worms into uh, good compost. Uh, fermentation. We need to start uh, making our own fermentation. You guys, um, I don't drink, so I can go on this tangent. Um, you guys know that alcohol was 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 like someone left their 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 drink and their, their drink became alcoholic and then oh someone left their porridge in the sun and it's all bubbly now oh well, let's cook it and make sure just whatever it is wrong with it we'll just cook it out of it it expanded and made bread and you know it was fungi and fermentation it, it was these things that like you know made food last longer and actually our digestion really shows that we've been pickling things, fermenting things a long time. And if those of you who suffer from Crohn's stopped drinking and years later realized, hey, this stuff called probiotic stuff is pre-alcohol and my gut loves it. I can't handle alcohol. I'll die because I have Crohn's. Um, if you guys know anyone with Crohn's who drinks, let them know. Um, but I need that probiotic stuff because that's what actually my body needs. And if you look back in history and actually say, well, bottles didn't seal for many years at a time, so how could we make alcohol that was strong? Oh, it was all probiotic drinks. The wine they talk about in, in the scriptures and stuff wasn't alcohol like we have now because they couldn't age it. They didn't have... I mean, think about this. How old is soup? How old is soup? Well, it has to be in a container you can put fire on and hold water in. A watertight container that you can put fire on. It's actually pretty recent. So there's reasons that we live the way we live and there's all these misconceptions we have because we're looking at it from our perspective and we're using our words as if their words are the same. Ah! Ten minutes. Anyway, fermentation is super cool and there's so much complexity in there. So much complexity. Um, other forms of preservation, uh, we all love doing that stuff. Kids love doing that stuff. Permaculture is a lens through which education can become super energized. Okay. Math and science prove what arts inspire and humanities attempt to communicate. We're all one. It's all one holistic whole on. Okay. It's a whole system. So this is my book. These are just excerpts from my book. It's out there. This is talking about microclimates. It's talking about nitrogen fixation. This is my new book. This is the high school volume, the first high school volume ever created for permaculture. I'm talking about things that aren't in most books. I'm talking about planting, uh, uh, planting techniques. I'm talking about seed saving. I'm talking about people like Wangari uh, Matai, who uh, is a Nobel Peace Prize winner, started the Green Belt Movement, started teaching women how to... like. She's one of the people that was realizing that there's food, but everyone's starving. And she, she brought, back, brought back culture, brought back the food, brought back the land. Um, this is Joseph Simcox. He's an amazing guy bringing back foods that are basically lost um, or too rare for us to even know about. And he's bringing back, that's him holding a desert food up. Um, and... And you know what? I'm, I'm fixing high school textbooks because they don't even know what the carbon cycle is. Everyone's like, oh, carbon sequestration. Ah, what's that? Because they never learned in school because it's the simplest, most important thing we need to understand. 
carbon is the backbone for everything. It's the structure for everything. And it's also the fuel that we burn. It's the structure and the fuel. And then with that fuel is, is, uh, is nitrogen. Uh, I was talking about the carbon. This is the nitrogen. Where's the... Uh, all right, well, on my website, I have the carbon. This is the nitrogen. The nitrogen is even more messed up. This is one of, this is one of six nitrogen, nitrogen diagrams that I have to have because it's the only way you can actually understand it. I worked for weeks with a soil scientist on this. And they don't have this information in the high school textbooks. It is not even available in the college textbooks. And so, like, I put this up there and it became like college hour. And like, I had all these college students being like, but my teacher said that turns into that. And it's like, yeah, it works in that equation that we all had to learn, the moles and the blah, blah, blah. Remember from high school? Those are mathematical meaninglessnesses. That's why I used a made-up word. So they literally did played math games with us instead of actually teaching us about the real world. And cheated. And when I learned this, I like almost cried. So, um, and this is all stuff I explain more in my book, and everyone will be able to understand this. Um, cool stuff like this, restorative circles. You guys have ever, ever heard of restorative justice? Instead of punishing the other person, it focused on restoring. And, and like kind of the root of justice, actually, if you study the Bible, re- restoration. Um, this is The Forgotten Food Forest. This is a children's book I'm writing. I'm almost out of time. Um, this is with a Disney animator. Um, and it's about a real food forest that's 3,000 years old. It's in the middle of the desert in Morocco. And it's still fe- feeding people. 800 people eat out of it. So it exists. I wanted to do a book about it so children would be like, this is amazing. And in the back of the book, there's a picture of it. And it's real. So, and then it, because it's real, it's also technically, um, I can fit it into schools. You know? Because it's a historical fiction I wrote. And so that's my like, in to the fourth and fifth graders. Maybe third graders. So unit examples. Um, this is the last thing I, wa- I wanted to do. This is how we can take permaculture and combine all of our different classes into one thing. So here we go. Humanities. So you're going to be writing, you're going to do research, you're doing essays and oral reports. It can be auto-visual, it can be typed out, it doesn't matter. Um, you're going to be doing science, it's dry farming. We're going to be measuring uh, how much rainfall you get, the soil moisture. You've got those little like, sensors you can plug in. Uh, the nutritional density. Anyone know what a bricks meter is? You just put the juice and hold it up to the sun and it tells you on a number how, how much sugar it has in it, how much starch. Um, food, uh, you can do analysis of the soils for like mineral contents. You can do all this different stuff. Um, all that math, um, is, uh, all that science requires math. Okay, I have five minutes, good. All right, and then art. You got to present this all so it's beautiful and understandable, which is actually kind of when you actually talk about that as a thing, changes its value. If it's just make it, just do it. It's, if you're trying to communicate, make it look good. What, what do you think looks good? And like ask them what they think looks impressive and changes everything. Okay? Because that's who they are. Do you guys know that? When we present things, I love teaching by the way. When we present, we are presenting who we are. That's why I value the whole stand and deliver form of teaching. Because if you know it, you know it. And then you become it. And then it changes who you are. 
And then, and then no one can take that away from you because that learning becomes like your confidence and your character. Ah. Yeah. So proposed tasks. So create a dry garden. Breed drought tolerant plants. Performances uh, exhibiting and exploring the history and current practices of dry farming if you've got a group. Um, and so I really did cover it. This is actually made for um, the Los Angeles International Schools. They're using this in all five locations and they're waiting for my high school volumes um, to buy and they're just like waiting patiently. So um, I created all these for them to use as their starters because they're realigning their entire CAS core program to be permaculture. So the international baccalaureate programs are, are going to be coming out of LA, all permaculture based, and because they want the green certification, the green flag certification in their school. Um, but we're going to make a database for all the other international baccalaureate schools. And then my course is set up so that you pay one price regardless of whether you're a school, a family, or a neighborhood. So I'm subsidizing it. So what's happening is we're going like this. I'm coming from the upper end with like the, the highest level of, of high schooling. We, I, I'm, I'm a homeschooling parent, so it's, it's all designed to be uh, like a child can use my stuff themselves if it's, age, if it's the right age. Um, and so like we're, I'm coming at it from all these angles because we have to. Because, I mean, the homeschooling kids are going to be the ones with the free time so that they can actually develop the skills. But they, we have to have the kids understand it so they go to our kids' businesses. Right, right, right. Um, <laughs> or they go work for our kids, right? Um, so carbon sequestration. Uh, this is something that's measurable. This is something that we can do mathematically. And this is something that we can, we really need to artistically rep- practice representing so that we can have a picture in our mind when we talk to each other about what it is. Okay, alternative energy, same sort of thing. Um, do you want to get up closer afterwards and take pictures? You can. While we do, while we do uh, questions, you guys can totally do that. Um, the same sort of thing. If you're, if, if you're measuring it, if it's in the natural world, and if you're communicating about it, that covers everything. Those are the skills. When I was a teacher, I got so frustrated with this concept that like English classes, reading and writing, I'm like, listening and speaking. You know, and then teamwork and then individual work. You have to have all angles and, you know, but that's why I'm not a public school teacher anymore, you know, because they tied my hands and I was like, you know, I got to go to some place where they care more about the education than they do about the rules. So entrepreneurism and service, this is something that I believe is really um, close to the, the homeschooling heart. And so um, these are things that businesses and service that kids can start doing now. Kids can start doing this stuff with their friends and their buddies. They can make businesses. They can... And by the way, the best way to do service is through a business. Especially if it's uh, just a bunch of youth doing it. Because guess what? We made $100. Hey, let's take 50 of it down the block and do this with it. And then they're like, yeah. It was just us working today. It was just that easy. We can do it again tomorrow. And we can just, you know, and they can just do it because they're empowered because they did it. It's not something they're paid by another person. Oh, he gave me it. It's only, it's only this much, and he gave me it, and I, I'm going to give it to you. When you earn it, you have so much more. You're more empowered to share it. Um, so I really believe that early on, entrepreneurism leads to more generosity and more community. Um, resiliency 
and happiness. So, educationally, um, what's important to the student, important to the subject at the time, is also important to the other subjects, right? And when it overlaps with what's important to the future, really is what permaculture is getting at. Because what's important to our future? Well, the environment's important to our future. Um, and so, all of our subjects, too, should be important to our future. And I'm out of time. But I think I'm on time. <laughs> so that's my website. I'm Matt Powers again. The website is thepermaculturestudent.com. I've got my middle school books out. The high school books should be out by Christmas. So Q&A, because uh, I didn't really cover gardening questions, and I know you have gardening questions. Uh, let me show you um, the pictures again uh, of, my, of my garden, because that will help frame your mind around the questions you want to ask, because you'll be able to see how different it is. Where can we learn more about dry farming plants? Okay. Dry farming in the drier regions has stopped because everything's basically owned by national and international conglomerates, so they just shift their resources. So they dry farm in the, mid, in the mid Midwest because it rains every week. You guys knew that, right? I'm sorry to tell you that. It hurts, doesn't it? Every week it rains, almost. And so they dry farm. But when... All right, so my point of reference, um, we've always traditionally done it. The Anasazis did it, right? Uh, lots of, you know, the desert regions of the world have traditionally done dry farming and dry climates. Um, but where I come in with my uh, studying of it is dry farming by John Witso, who is one of the um, leadership. He was one of uh, the presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and he wrote it in, I think, 1920. Widso, W-I-D, or W-I-D-T-S-O-E. I don't know if I'm being dyslexic with the D and T. Um, but he wrote Dry Farming, and it's because they were exiled to Utah, and they had to figure out how to grow food with, li with limited resources. Um, so that's the most recent kind of publication um, from a source that's living off of it that I know of. All the other sources that we have more recently are going to either be more foreign. So dry farming, just try it. Um, yeah, I would research. The reason I did horizontal in my dry farm was because horizontal was a traditional crop in regions where they dry farmed. And so I knew it. And so I knew the genes were in there even though no one had done it since I did it, that I know of. And then the same thing with traditional corn. Which varieties are we talking about? I mean, there's flint, there's flour, uh, there's dent, um, and then there's teosinte, which is the ancestor of corn. And so you have this, all these different like corn varieties. Mixed into all that are heirloom varieties that have been passed down that still have strong genes. Some of them are still being grown uh, traditionally, uh, and it's really crazy to watch. They're, they have mounds. They grow out of the mounds like 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 blah, like hair going exploding out of it, and they don't water them. And so it's just a different thing altogether. Um, 
And when we're adapting seed, how many people save seed? How many people have seen drastically, uh, drastic changes in their plants? People who save seeds see drastic changes in their plants. So, um, I would always recommend testing things. Almost everything I learned in permaculture, I, I tested the opposite as I tested it because I had to know. I, I mean, if I was lied to through public school, how can I trust that I'm not being lied to now? And so I had to know, and so I tested it at all. Um, and, yeah, I tested it, or like like swales, for instance. Swales um, are paths in your garden that are on contour with a soft berm on the lower side. If you're on a hill, it's going to be flat on on that walkway, and so the water will pacify when it rains. So you can flood irrigate, and it'll stay even the whole way. Does that make sense? So that's great, right? Um, but. Uh, does that mean that it works everywhere? Does that mean that it works for all systems? I mean, you know what I mean? It's all specific. Um, and that's like a permaculture technique, but, but again, that's like a specific thing that might not work for you. You might be raising cattle, and you might want a, a flat field, and so you would rip it instead on contour. So you'd rip like a, like not a furrow, but a rip, like a... They have these straight pieces of wood, like a straight shank, and so it goes into the ground like that and just runs. And so it doesn't push the ground, it just goes like that. Uh, and then um, when the water hits that, it infiltrates there, and so that's all on contour. Does that make sense? So those are like permaculture concepts for gardening. And is that all in your book? Okay. That stuff is. That kind of principle. Uh, principle. And that's the thing is, I wanted principles first, and that's why I wrote that book. Because techniques, if you do a technique and then you do a technique, they're going to be different. Because your land responds differently. Um, because the, the setting and the, all the different factors are different. So I want to take the principles so you guys can recognize and go, oh, well, that's probably that because that. And then I know that's doing this, so if, if I don't do that, that'll protect that. And You know what I mean? You just realize you have a system and you have to be careful of things. Instead of just knocking down the whole jungle and planting a, you know, a field. So, questions? Because we have 10 minutes. I have two large patches of garden. One is overrun by fine feet and the other one by nuts. I just kind of gave up. I was trying to shake them out for a while. Is there hope? Okay. Um, I talk about this in the new book um, that I'm writing right now. Um, do you guys know that at pH 7 the expression of nitrogen changes. The expression changes from nitrate above pH 7 to ammonium below pH 7. That means that it's not like nitrogen that's there. It's being constantly created and cycled. It's a nitrogen cycle, right? And so it's it's creating, it, 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 it's, it's, so you, if you have all those weeds, you're above pH 7. Because they feed on nitrates. All weeds live above pH 7. How do you get it below pH 7? Pretty easily, actually. Woody composts, so stuff that's heavy on the carbon side and on the brown side, not the green side, which is more bacterial, which will be great for gardens and it's more alkaline. Woody side makes more fungal, so that actually lowers the pH in a good way. 
Not like a forced way, right? Because if we force the pH lower or force it up with sulfur or lime or something like that, you're causing a uniform change. But if you actually offer the compost tea or compost that's more fungal, the plant calibrates it. So you're pl- you guys know that um, plants are covered with uh, these little hairs, right? And they put out exudates that bacteria and fungi feed upon. They put out sugars and car- a little bit of carbohydrates, a little bit, teeny bit of protein. It's basically the ingredients for cake cakes and cookies, as Elaine Ingham likes to say. These things come and feed on it, and their waste calibrates the pH. And the nematodes and the larger things in the soil, nematodes, protozoa, um, and uh, microarthropods, they feed on those uh, fungi and bacteria, and their waste feeds the plants. It seems convoluted, but that's how it works. So you literally give the tools to the plant, and the plant like calibrates it all and sets it up for themselves. And some plants are better at it than others. The annual garden plants are pretty dumb. They've been ba- there are babies, and so they're they're kind of like puppies actually. Actually, dogs are kind of like wolf puppies. Do you guys know about this? We've actually puppyified our plants and animals, and that's why their ears are soft. Because stiff ears are actually signs of wild wildness. Um, the tail, the way the tail behaves, all these different things, we're puppyifying our plants too. So. That, and that also takes away the nutrients. That's why sweet corn is like nothing compared to um, uh, purple and like uh, and blue corn and stuff like that. Question? Have you done anything with biochar on your um, I don't feel the need to burn anything. <laughs> um, Elaine Ingham has a bunch of things on biochar and uh, EM uh, Bokashi composting um, that she's like, yeah, but. I understand what you're saying, but the principle, and she'll like break down the principles of it, and I haven't gone there yet because I don't include that in my book. Um, I think I, I understand the concept. The concept is that there's more surface area, and so you give, uh, you give microhabitat to bacteria and fungi to live in, in your soil, and then there's more porous areas, so they create more um, colloids and so they have more water holding capacity. I completely understand that. But it's also an excuse to burn everything. <laughs> and, and they're like, oh, it works great in Latin America. They're burning down the jungle and look at the food they're growing. And it's like, how many seasons? You know? So, and I understand that what they're trying to do is they're trying to recreate volcanic soils by creating an insoluble, like, carbonaceous, like, mineral-based diet, but it doesn't work that way. Um, what they need to do is they need to um, imitate what, what's already naturally there. Um, the jungles don't burn. They're too wet. So burning there doesn't make much sense to me. So to get back to the weed... Yeah. Question. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I get on tangents. Uh, got to forgive me. I'm questioning with it. With you. <laughs> so, like, my daughter is... truck that goes by, she waves them down and they dump on her. So she's got this, and then during the winter when it was moist, it was, it was growing like stuff. And she, So is that going to help her weed problem? Is that changing the pH that she's done? Is that a help? For well, go, go, go to the National Forest. I mean, are there weeds? No. On the edges. No. Right? They're on the edges, but then you walk inside and it's 
everything starts changing, you know. It's because it's not, it's just not habitat for them. Last year, I, I put down a, a barky mulch in my garden. Sorry, my voice, I'm a little bit sick right now, but I put down a barky mulch, and I didn't think much of it, but I put a barky mulch again this year. And uh, just what you said, it just like, aha, like because there's hardly any weeds. And then the weeds that do pop up are so shallow-rooted, I just pluck them right out. And, I, and I did, it didn't connect until you mentioned that right now. So they're all like anemic, right? Yeah. But the plants are thriving, but there's just hardly any. And the, are they perennials? Uh, uh, tomatoes, cucumbers. Okay. Stuff like that. Yeah, it, 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 depend, it depends on, you know that, uh, I'm trying to think. I think that, all right, so how it works is, is all, of our, all of our garden plants need both vegetative and reproductive growth. They're different forms of nitrogen. So they need the vegetative growth, which is nitrate, but then they need the reproductive growth and the seed growth, which is ammonium. So you need, you can't till your soils and make it all one pH. You need to give them the tools, and they need to form it themselves so that they have the options. So you don't till in the woody, whatever, you just like dump it on top? Yeah, and they draw it down. Like worms will come and bring it down and back up. How often would you till? I stopped tilling years ago. So just don't? I don't till. Oh, if you want to grow annuals, you must disturb. Annuals, annuals grow in... in they're, they're right at pH 7 or right above. And they dip down right below it for when they want ammonium for when they're setting fruit. This is when everyone has tomatoes that are no fruit and just green. That's all nitrate. That's all bacterial. But then if you've got a plant that instantly bolts, you're like, ah, it just went to seed and it's like this big and it's, it's all ammonium. It's getting just reproductive, reproductive, you know. So which one is like chicken poop if you let it dry out? Nitrate. So you would balance that with compost, and uh, you could compost it. Um, and when you use uh, chicken manure, you uh, usually granulize it to give it more surface area so it breaks down faster. Otherwise, it stays there as this little, like, heat, like, uh, yeah, just a little, like, little hot thing that just stays there. <laughs> what do I use for fertilizer? You know, I was pulling out the bedding from the goat pen and the chicken pen, but this year, I, my time is up. But I will finish with this question. I've actually, this year, kind of stopped feeding them. And there are very specific reasons for that. Um, I'll just, this last thing. Vigor. We always talk about we want things vigorous, but we never think about what vigor actually does. Vigor is bad to orchardists. Water sprouts are caused by vigor. That's when you just give too much water to a tree and it just sprouts like crazy. And, and then it's super weak because it's just water. There's not balance of all the other things. It's the same thing when you just give something endless nitrates. Like when we like feed all like, you know what I mean? What they're doing with half these plants is they're feeding it lots of nitrates so it grows really fast and they're switching it like, they're switching it over to reproductive growth with ammonium and then they're getting like, uh, oh, they're just freaking it out like this. 
we want slow growth that's aligned to the genes of the plant so that the plant actually combines itself properly and not stressed. When we stress plants out, it's just like, it's a really sad comparison, but it's real. People in war-torn countries have lots of children because they're trying to pass on their genes. They don't know if they're going to have, uh, how many kids they're going to survive. This is why people keep pumping out kids in those areas. If you look at Ireland, you know, when Ireland was, was at its worst, that's exactly what happened there too. Um, so when we stress out plants, we get stressed out food, which means we get less nutrient. Because you only get given a certain amount of money every year as a plant. It's the sun, you get a certain amount of sap, and that's it. If you cut off all my branches, my sap's going to go to those two branches and give you fruit and then tons of vegetative growth. So vigor must be managed. And Fukuoka, the natural farmer, uh, uh, he didn't use fertilizer other than every two to three years he used granulated chicken manure. And I do compost teas and I do bring out the bedding for the animals, but I'm kind of much more into doing nothing. I chop and drop. It's so much more fun. And plus, you know, weeds are reparative mechanisms. So you chop, pull them, and then you... No, I don't pull them out the roots. I leave the roots. I chop them. Because weeds are accumulating nutrients from the localized area and then dropping them, and then they die, to the topsoil. They're, they're, they're basically calibrating what the soil needs. And so when we chop and drop them, we're speeding that process up. And we rip them out. We're, we're asking for someone worse to come along with bigger spikes. So we want the weeds to do their work, so I always chop and drop them before they go to seed. Um, does that make sense? Cool. That's in my book, too. My book's out there, and I'll be there in a second. so much for listening. I want to invite everyone out there to the free webinar I'm giving on how I garden and I'm going to teach a lot of permaculture principles and nature principles as I garden so you get to understand how you can apply those skills where you're at. And I'm going to talk about different methods and different styles of gardening because I do a blend and everyone should do a blend and adapt it to their area. So Tune into that, sign up and tune in, and you'll get a free ebook for when you watch it and t attend it. And when you sign up, you'll be put in a raffle for a book package that's over $50 in value. It's got a ton of stuff. It's got um, the physical copies of my books, it's got some digital copies of other books that I've written, and it's going to be amazing. So, we have this awesome new book for elementary school kids called permaculture for school gardens. It is readable to kids. It is understandable by the adults teaching it. Is it, it is implementable. It is realistic. And you can, you're going to love it. So just check it out. Go to thepermaculturestudent.com. Click on shop. And it is there. That's the top new thing we got going. So it's only $4. So it's super easy buy. Something you can print in color and laminate. You can give to the local school. 
There's so many things you can do with it, and I'm so excited. I'm literally getting you know hourly notifications of it being bought, and I'm just so excited about it. So here, dive in and check it out, and have a wonderful week. From Permaculture Tonight, I'll see you at the webinar.